Before we turn to the word, let's bow our heads in word of prayer. Almighty God, we have not the power, but Lord, we see you as a source of all power, of all good. And so, Father, to you we turn even right now. Bring light into our lives. Father, help us to, to rise above our frail frame and to be molded by your master hand into the image of your son. We pray that your, your word would inspire to burn away all other passions and leave us into the glowing image of your son. We can do nothing, and so we turn in, in complete dependence to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, uh, I've been blessed recently to uh, hear a number of testimonies. Actually, I think within the past week, uh, I've been privileged to hear eight different people share their, their personal testimony of how God worked in them to bring them from darkness to life. And it's always fascinating to me. I think it is the greatest story. Uh, I think it gives God great glory how he can rescue unique and individual people um, and bring them out of bondage, out of blindness, and into you know, freedom and, and to, to truly see. And of course, everything is unique. Every person has their unique trajectory, their unique character, their unique struggles, their unique moment of victory. But there's always things that are common. And uh, I think there's the one passage that I think is universal in every human's experience that uh, when you read the Bible, you know is something you can relate to. And that's found in, in Romans chapter 7. So let's uh, begin our meditation by reading together from Romans chapter 7. In fact, rather than reading right from the beginning, let's uh, turn to, um, let's start reading from verse 14, and then we'll come back and, and read the beginning afterwards. So don't close your Bibles, please. <clears throat> Romans chapter 7, beginning to read from verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. Uh, I, do, I, I believe it's wrong. But what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, that I don't want to do, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will, to want to do it, is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. 
but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that, I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, I want to do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members, my body. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. I think this struggle is one that, uh, that everyone can relate to. As we have all experienced wanting to do the right thing, agreeing that uh, the word of God is true, it's telling us to do the right thing, but finding ourselves doing the wrong thing. I know that certainly was my experience for, for a number of years. And as I said, each one of these individuals could testify to that struggle. Now, there's sometimes a controversy of whether this would apply to a Christian's life. Would, should a Christian find themselves in this position of being powerless to do what is right? And I firmly uh, want to stress that no, Paul is talking here about the unconverted state. But that is not to say that a Christian can experience that if they don't uh, continue to um, dwell in Christ and they don't continue to abide in the solution that God provided. So we find this stubborn stain of sin and there we want to get to the, the simple solution of salvation. And this stubborn stain of sin, it has this shame associated with it, this pain, this, this sense of failure that you can just hear from Paul's struggle of, of, of this repeated failure, this repeated setting a goal, saying, I'm never going to do this again, and ending up doing it again of saying, I'm going to change, I'm, I'm going to do the right thing, and falling short. <clears throat> and sin, in, in this sense of, 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 of moral oughtness, of knowing right and wrong is universal. It is, of course, those who know God's word, have a, a very clear view and we'll get into how we get that clear view of right and wrong but even if you come from you know uh, deepest darkest continental Africa or some island that's remote if you've never had contact with God's written word you still have a sense of right and wrong a sense of being violated when wrong is done to you and a sense of, of compulsion of, of, of conscience and the scripture bears that out here in Romans chapter 2. It talks about the person who, who uh, is a Gentile who doesn't know God's law. 
Um, for the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in law, these having not a law, are a law to themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, bearing witness, and their thoughts, meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. So, so God is saying that everyone knows and has a sense inside of them what's right and wrong, even if they haven't been exposed to God's word. And I think this, this shows, is one more evidence, as an aside, that we are created by God. That there is a law, no matter how atheistic and secular you want to be, you still feel offended when someone takes your stuff. And if there's a law, there is a lawgiver, and there is a standard. Otherwise, you really can't... Um, you don't have a basis for any, any right and wrong. But moving on, there's, there's, this is a universal experience of all mankind. And because of the pain of this struggle, there's different ways to respond. There's different ways people respond when they find themselves trapped in uh, unable to meet their own Consciences dictates. There is uh, the tendency to either wallow and say, I, I, I cannot help myself, I am a failure, and I'm good. Satan can you just say, you know, just give in to it. Or there's a tendency to, to, to minimize. It's not that bad. To justify, it's okay because, and then to, 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 to rationalize, to minimize, to rationalize, and, and eventually to, to, to become desensitized to sin. Because you don't want to feel the pain of this struggle, you deaden yourself to the feeling. Of course, you haven't solved the problem. It's still there, but you numb yourself to it. And the Bible speaks about a conscience that's been seared, a conscience that, that has become desensitized, and how dangerous that is, that in the latter days we are going to be among people who have totally deadened their conscience. We do this as individuals, and we can see it being done as a culture as well. Uh, I can see it in my short life the, the trends, and you know, and you know, already when I was young, certain moral things. Uh, I know the generation before there was a lot of moral shame, uh, cultural stigma associated with, say, extramarital sex, fornication was something. You know, if someone got pregnant, it was a huge shame. But that has been just so blatantly glorified in, in the media, in the movies and everything else that it's, it's like there's something wrong with you if, if you're not participating in that sin. And then, you know, uh, uh, so adultery and then, you know, divorce and, you know, now uh, homosexuality, they, they, they can measure the change in cultural values as, as people have, have, uh, have made a, a, a a campaign to change the, the societies uh, and remove the stigma. 
and abortion as well. You see this, this almost this vehemence that, that people come to, to defend you know, their right to uh, end the baby's life, murder. Um, and and why, why is there such, an, uh, uh, and why are we hitting a nerve? Why is there such a reaction? Why is there so, such a, 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 a violent response to those who would uh, try to maintain uh, our historical, biblical positions on these moral things? They claim to be desensitized and minimized and having justified this sin as being normal and right and biologically required. And yet, their conscience underneath there is still alive. It's still there. And when you poke at it, when, when someone comes along and makes a statement that, that, that speaks to that being wrong, they know in their heart of hearts it's wrong. And that's why you get you know, the reaction of trying to shoot the messenger rather than humbly accepting the message. <laughs> So, the scripture speaks of this, of this willful ignorance. Uh, again, in Romans, the first chapter, it speaks about who God has a problem with, who God will judge. And it's those people that he has revealed the truth who suppress the truth. It says, who hold down the truth. In unrighteousness. And, and, and the, the Greek word would uh, rightly say in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous men who hold the truth or who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And it's this willful suppression that God is going to say, you knew better. You may have fooled people. You may have redefined the laws of the land. And we've had a sermon recently about, you know, how south of the border there is a big uh, arrogant, uh, uh, you know, who cares what God thinks. We're going to change the laws about homosexuality. And, and, and we, we dare not be smug because that has happened a long time ago in this country without much fanfare. But... Dis, no, no changing the laws of, of a land is going to change the wrath of God that is going to be against those who willingly are, are, are suppressing their conscience. So that, that's the struggle. That's our reaction to it. That's, that's the experience we have. And uh, in, in this sin not only deadens our conscience... The shame also makes us hide and become isolated. In the very first, if you read in Genesis chapter 3, when, when Adam and Eve first uh, um, sinned against God, and then they heard God's voice in the garden, do you remember what the reaction was? They heard God's voice and they, they hid because they had sinned. And, and, and that Shame of, of knowing I have failed. If anybody would really see what's inside my heart, if anybody really knew all these things, if this was really brought to the light, I would be rejected. 
Therefore, I'm going to hide. And I'm, there's going to be layers of deceit, layers of hiding from myself. And this, this trying to uh, disconnect from the truth, not only you know, do we try to fool others, we fool ourselves. And uh, it, it really is insanity, literally, when we are trying to disconnect ourselves from reality. <clears throat> How did this happen? <clears throat> if we back up and read a few verses before that, before there was willful ignorance, there was blissful ignorance. <clears throat> uh, Paul says that I was alive, verse 9, if you still have your script, the Bible open, says in verse 9, I was alive without the law once. He was young, he was innocent, he was... Uh, unaware of God's requirements. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. When he became aware of, sin, of, of God's commands, that's when sin became alive and when he, he died, he became spiritually dead. He obviously wasn't, didn't physically die. It's talking about his um, becoming separated from God and being judged by God. As we saw, God's judgment is on those who suppress truth. The commandment which was ordained, God intended to bring life. Paul says, I experienced to find it to be, to, to, to be unto death, to, to actually cause me to be separated from God. Yeah. Why is this? How? For sin... Taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me. Sin is using God's laws. I'm deceived by sin and I'm spiritually uh, dead because of it. I'm spiritually condemned because of it and separated from God. So we know God's law is, not, is, is the problem with God's law. God's law is holy. His commandment is holy. It's just, it's good. It's not God's law's fault. So Paul asked the obvious rhetorical question here, was then that which was good, God's law, made death unto me? God forgive, forbid. But sin that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin might by the commandment become exceeding sinful. So God's law... Uh, exposed sin. That was the very words of one of the, the people who shared their testimony. They said when they began to read God's law, they felt exposed. It, 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 it took the cover of all this rationalization and cultural redefining of words um, and, and redefining of norms that, that, that make us feel like we're okay and it, it takes the cover off and shows what's really there. And so as God's law <clears throat> exposes what's in our heart, we start to see sin for what it is, that it really is in the sight of God, exceeding, very sinful. And it's exposed, and as I could even, uh, as I now, in full knowledge of God's law, continue to transgress, I am further condemned and separated from God. I become spiritually dead. Um, and further that, I'm going to back up a little further. Verse 
7 and 8, along the same line, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, had not known sin, like we just said, it was exposed by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. Concupiscence is not a word that we use every day. It means wanting something that you're not allowed to have. And uh, we could explain this as, you know, the, the uh, cookies on the, the counter effect, that uh, the forbidden fruit effect. The fact that if, you know, if we make a bunch of cookies and we put them on the counter and say everyone can have them, uh, the kids are going to come and say, well, you know, they, they were better last time. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of full. Um, these nuts are turning a little bit rancid. Or they'll find excuses. But if, on the other hand, you know, you say, you're not allowed to have them. They're for company only. Don't you dare have any. All of a sudden, these cookies that, you know, maybe they turned their nose at before become an object of Interest. They're something that I would like to have, but I cannot have. And we can start to strategize. And maybe one kid will cause a diversion, or, or one kid will be ringing alarm bells saying the other one got one when you weren't looking because this is now the object of a lot of interest and desire because it's forbidden. And while we can, you know, look at these children and their antics over sugar and, and smile... It's, it's not a laughing matter when it comes to the fact that God, uh, uh, God's law is telling us certain things are out of bounds for us. Not because, you know, he arbitrarily wants to, to, to remove joy from our lives, but because these things are deadly, because he knows what's best for us. He puts sin out of bounds and we say, oh, you know, just like with those cookies, you know, you know, it, it, you know, a little bit can't be that bad. And, you know, we heard Satan's rationalizations in the garden saying, you know, God's holding out on you. If you only knew, he, he's, he doesn't want you to let you have it because you'll be like him. You can't really trust God. These rules, they're just arbitrary. Your parents' rules, the Bible's rules, you know, society has changed. We're more evolved since then, you know all kinds of rationalizations because you want something you're not that's out of bounds. The very fact it's out of bounds causes that desire in you. And we're seeing here that sin is taking occasion by the commandment and brings in me that, that desire for the forbidden. And it exposes and God's law is exposing sin. It's making sin to be more stark what it really is, and it's even making me want it just because it's forbidden. <clears throat> so we see the experience of being under the power of sin. Where we backed up and we saw the cause of sin, the fact that, that this process of, of being exposed to God's commands and still willingly continuing and uh, to, to transgress and becoming more condemned in the process. It seems like a very uh, uh, um, dark and uh, dismal picture. And we see the desperation in verse 24 when 
Paul cries out, O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from the body of this death? One of the persons who shared their testimony said, you know, I just, as I got to know God's law, I wanted to please him. I read the verse, you know, that, that that's how I can have a relation with God, by pleasing him. And, and as I try to do these things, I continue to fail. And, and this, ver- this passage seemed to, um, I could relate to it. It understood my problem. And so I read it over and over again, trying to understand how do I get from here to a solution. We understand the problem. And we, we can relate to this cry of feeling wretched when we're honest with ourselves, when we're not minimizing, rationalizing, and, and suppressing truth. And the answer then is, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I, I want to go back to the beginning here because sometimes we, we see the problem and, and, and Paul actually gave us the answer in the front. It, it happens in the story of Job and it happens here too that the big answer is in the beginning and sometimes we skip over it. It says, um, when we were in the flesh, the motions, the, the passions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members, bringing forth fruit unto death. When you are in the flesh, and he says here, when I'm in the flesh, I serve the law of sin. There's this power, there's this, uh, I see a predictable law, like the law of gravity, that, you know, is keeping me under this control because I'm in the flesh. What does this mean, in the flesh? <clears throat> and if we would continue going on, there's therefore no condemnation them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, the law exposed sin. It made me aware of sin. But it didn't solve the problem of sin. It didn't give me any power to overcome sin, as it says it is. That, that the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. My uh, body, my uh, uh, without God, without God's spirit help, who I am, my sinful nature cannot do what's right even when I try. That's why this experience is universal. And so just having someone come along and tell me you shouldn't be doing that doesn't help me. Because even if I know I shouldn't do it, and even if I try my hardest not to do it, I still end up doing it. So the law does not save me. And it didn't save the Jews for the thousands of years before it. It, it, it became, made sin exceedingly sinful. It made me aware of my wretched state. It made me aware of the fact I'm separated from God, but it doesn't help me. And that is what religion and rules and regulations, where, why all religion fails and falls down at this point that it's just appealing to uh, self-discipline and the self is a sinful self and can't discipline itself. And we skip uh, two verses further that says, uh, because the carnal mind, carnal means fleshly, means you know your, your sinful self, because the carnal mind is enmity, is at enmity with God, it's, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. There's an impossibility laid out here. So the law could not save you because it was weak through the flesh. So God 
Verse 3 now, Romans 8, if you're following me. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. So, so God solves the problem because the law cannot save you. He sent his son who came as a human being. He was not of, uh, of uh, he was not sired by, uh, by humans. He was sired, his, his father was God. He did not have a sinful nature, so it's only the likeness of sinful flesh. But he, he was a human and having all the passions and, and tempted in every point like we are, as Hebrews 5 says. And for the purpose of sin, he, he was overcame sin and he died became one with our sin and died for our sin. So God, the righteous law, He alone fulfilled the righteous law for those, and here comes the qualification because I'm sure you're all interested, how do I go from the state of being wretched and powerless and, and, and isolated from my own self and from others by shame to being in this blessed state of being, having no condemnation and being Christ Jesus, and it says, for those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And now, how does it, what does walking after the flesh look like? What does walking after the Spirit look like? The next verse says, those who are after flesh do mind. What are they thinking about? The things of the flesh. And those that are after the Spirit, they are thinking, their mind is filled with things of the Spirit. And there's where carnal mind leads us to death, and a spiritual mind is life and peace. And in, because, and we, we get to that thing that we're that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So this spirit is the answer to think about spiritual things, to walk in a favor. But well, Edmund, five minutes ago, you told me I can't be good no matter how hard I try. And now you're telling me I just need to follow God and, and, and walk and have a pattern of life that follows God. Aren't you contradicting yourself? It says that the power here, it says the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead, verse 11, if he dwells in you, the, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead will also make alive your mortal bodies by his spirit. For if you live after the flesh, you'll die. But if you through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body ye shall live. For as many as are led, led by the Spirit's God. So we see dwell, walk, uh, mortify the deeds of the flesh. If you, through the Spirit, not through your own power, resist the devil and submit to God, Actually, the order is the other way around. We see how this dovetails perfectly with James 4, 4 to 6, where it talks about resist the devil. No, submit. Sorry, that's the wrong order. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Though That's the correct order. Submit yourselves to God. Open yourself to him. Trust in him. Believe in him. Go from control to trust was another phrase that was heard. Or another one from last night was, I had to become vulnerable to God. I had to trust Him. 
and surrender. I had to make him Lord. So when we submit to God, to his leadership and lordship, as we heard this morning, that is a call to discipleship. It's a call to follow no matter what the cost. Then we uh, are, are um, able through his power to resist the devil, to mortify, to make dead the deeds of the body. All these things we were talking about before, the things I know I shouldn't do, that I try not to do, now I can die to them. And that takes us all the way back to the beginning of, of, of chapter 7, where it says, the way you get free from the condemnation law is by dying. It says, wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, so that you should be married to another. So you, you are like in the ark, you're in Christ, you're died with Christ and become dead to the law and all the legal way of righteousness. And that you should be married to Christ who is raised from the dead and we should bring fruit unto God for when we're in the, and so on. So now we are delivered from the law that being dead when we're held, that we should serve a newness of spirit and not an oldness of letter. So it, there's a difference. Yes, we still don't want to sin. Yes, we still want to do the right things and not do the wrong things. But I understand this difference because there's a newness of the spirit as opposed to an oldness of the letter. There's a relationship. There's a trust. There's a dwelling of the Spirit. By Him, we, we want to... When I finally gave in to God, there was a difference. It wasn't about not, trying, not doing bad things and trying to do good things and becoming a good boy. Rather, it was about loving the Lord with all my heart. Rather, it was about, in gratitude for what he did on the cross, wanting to serve him and do what he wanted to do as opposed to what I wanted to do. And that change was the newness of the Spirit. That was a passion. That was a complete devotion. That was the discipleship we heard about this morning. And and with that passion of serving God with all our heart... It's not about the rules anymore. In fact, I'm, I'm dead to the rules. I don't need the rules anymore. Paul says to Timothy, the law is for the lawless. We, we only need rules to keep people from stealing and murdering someone. But if you love the Lord with all your heart and you love your neighbor as yourself, you don't need the law. Those principles com- fulfill the law. All the law hangs on them. And so when we serve with newness of the Spirit, it's not like the oldest letter where... If you know any lawyers, they've got to, to think of all the twisted ways that people can find ways and loopholes around what's the plain intent of what's being written there. And cover in subsection 3.4.2, you know, the possibility that some twisted interpretation might try. All of that goes away because the law is about what's the minimum I have to do and how can I technically do this without necessarily having my heart do it. Whereas the newness of the Spirit is, I want to serve God with all my heart. He has saved me, and therefore, I'm willing to um, give Him all my life. And, and, and the fulfillment of the law's requirements 
are a side effect. In my experience, the things I struggled for years and could not overcome, I didn't have an interest in them anymore. Sure, they might have been attractive, but there was something so much better that you didn't want to bring that in the picture. So, I want to help those of you who are seeking him to, to see the difference between trying to be good and struggling versus loving God, surrendering him, trusting him, letting his spirit dwell in you richly and feeling that spirit of adoption we read at the end of 8 that, that says you're my son and, and, and wanting to respond to him through free will service. These testimonies that we heard, they had a common thread, uh, some of those uh, that we heard last night of those who were raised in the church. There was this expectation. They just thought, you know, okay, I'm in Sunday school. Uh, as time goes on, I'm old enough to, to graduate from Sunday school and now I'm in the sanctuary. So there's this expectation. This is what it works like. You just wait until it's your turn, and due to age and time, it's going to be your turn to get in the sanctuary. Soon enough, it's going to be your turn to get baptized. It's just going to happen automatically. And they all had this expectation, about four or five shared that. And their experience was not that. Their experience was this Roman 7 struggle. So they had to go to the point of being willing to, if you want to keep with the alliteration, expire, they had to be willing to to, to die to their own will, to become vulnerable, and to experience now a love for God that, that, uh, it, that changed everything, a peace and a joy. So I want to ask my friends to, to not think about this as religious rules. One of them said, you know, that he was 29 before he came back to God because he misunderstood the gospel as a set of regulations, a do's and don'ts. Don't waste your time with rules and regulations. Rather look for a relationship and respond to the God who loved you. And I want to challenge my brother and sister to uh, stay in that frame of mind, to... Fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's doing, that you continue to respond in gratitude, that we can have the discipleship experience we heard this morning. Because if we find ourselves slipping into Romans 7 experience, it's not time to redefine the Bible and say, oh, this applies to Christians and all this is normal. And since this is normal, what can I do? No, this is not, it's not about lowering expectations. But rather, it's about, um, about all of us. No one can stay entitled or, uh, as we heard this morning, rest on the past. But each of us needs to be uh, in passion and to serve God with all our hearts. May the Lord bless these few words.
fifth and the last verses. struggle 
that those who are seeking Thee would realize that what they are going through is recorded in the pages of Scripture, but not just the misery, but also the victory that is available when they will finally come to rock bottom, finally reach the end of their selves and be broken before Thee, that Thou canst reach down and touch the heart that is truly humble and granted grace to be restored to Thee. Heavenly Father, it's not until we test the strength of sin's chain that we realize how bound we really are. And Heavenly Father, we want to lift up in prayer unto Thee now those that are perhaps not even aware that they are in bondage, that think that they are free to choose and do their own thing, but have not yet tested the strength of sin's chains. Help them to try. Help them to realize that the strength is not in themselves, but the only one that has the power over that chain is the one who broke it at Calvary. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that we have the victory through Thy Son, Jesus Christ. We thank that Thou hast given all things unto us through Him, that we can experience not only the forgiveness of sins, but the new life as well, that we can walk free from sin. The question is not whether the Christian commits sin, but that he is free from sin and can now walk to please Thee. Help us all to strive to do that, to leave behind those things that would bind us and to, to press on to the mark of the high calling of Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, we want to ask that Thou continue to work in the hearts of the young people, uh, both young and old, those that are outside of Thy fold, to draw them slowly but surely unto Thee, that uh, hearts would be pricked, convicted, and ultimately broken so that they can be remade by Thee. Heavenly Father, we also want to pray unto Thee on the behalf of our sister in Balingen, uh, Sister Carolina, that Thou wouldst be gracious unto her if it would be Thy will to glorify Thyself through healing her. But Heavenly Father, our knowledge and our wisdom is imperfect, and if it is Thy intent to glorify Thyself in some other way, let Thy will be done. Heavenly Father, we want to also pray for those that are shut in, those that are recovering, those that are um, battling with sickness and cancers and whatever illness of the flesh that this, that this corruptible frame is heir to. Heavenly Father, where Thou wouldst be merciful and gracious unto them to heal them, do so. But if Thy will is to do something greater, Heavenly Father, let Thy name be glorified in another way. Be with us now, dear Lord. Bless us with the special blessing that we claim by gathering together in thy name. And be with us as we would go throughout the week ahead, that the things that we have learned today would not stay in the church, but we would carry them to a world that desperately needs the change that we have heard about this afternoon. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
We've heard the universal experience of the struggle, the wretched state of not being able to overcome sin. And we've heard not only about that stubborn stain of sin, but God's simple but not easy solution. And I want to just read the verse 5, the song we sang, that summarized it so beautifully. Have mercy then, O Lord. I bow in true submission. To me thy grace impart. Behold my deep contrition. I pray I leave thee not till I thy favor win. O break this power in me. Give me new life within. With that, we conclude this afternoon's service.